From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. In this episode, heck with rooftop solar. Utilities have a much bigger problem to worry about. Their commercial customers ditching them. MGM Resorts plans to stop buying electricity from Nevada Power, dealing a major blow to the utility. Is it a precedent? Then Exxon rejects shareholder demands on climate. We'll look at the latest salvo over the oil giant's carbon accounting. And we will end on a low note. Lake Mead, America's biggest reservoir serving over 20 million people in the West, hits its lowest level ever. Are water wars on the horizon? Who better to discuss these issues with than Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my regular co-hosts. Catherine's with us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Yes, and good news. Summer has arrived here. Finally. Although we're going to get a week of rain next week. So you've uh, given it to us. Aw. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Jigger Shaw is in New York. He just ran out of his taxi to his home studio. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Good. Well, regular listeners of this show might think that based on our conversations, the biggest threat to electric utilities is solar or a combination of rooftop solar and storage or microgrids. But power companies may have a bigger problem on their hands, corporate customer defection. Last week, two of the biggest Las Vegas casino companies, MGM Resorts and Wynn, filed to leave Nevada Power and set off to buy power on their own. MGM has particularly strong renewable energy goals, and this is a signal that the company thinks it can procure that clean energy cheaper than the utility can deliver it. This is a big deal. MGM represents 5% of Nevada Power's electricity demand, and here to discuss the implications of this defection is Corey Honeyman, the Associate Director of GTM's U.S. Solar Research Practice. He's been following the commercial customer class closely. Corey, welcome. How are you? Doing great. Glad to be here. So what are the casinos trying to do here? I just want to understand, like, what the process of ditching a utility is like. How does it actually work, particularly in Nevada? Yeah. Um, the best way to describe it is sort of thinking about a really protracted and messy breakup with a long-standing relationship that you have with someone. Because there's a lot of moving parts, and even when you initially say that you want to end that relationship, it's still, you know, spills over months after that initial conversation. So what happened here was MGM took advantage of longstanding legislation that was passed back in the early 2000s that allow for large customers to leave the grid as long as it has a uh, neutral impact on the rest of the ratepayers. And so this was initially legislation that happened because there was, uh, with the energy crisis back in the early 2000s, they had this legislation specifically targeting these larger commercial customer types. And so the legacy legislation has, you know, still been in place and there haven't been a lot of large customers that have taken advantage of this bill. But over the past year, there's been a handful of customers, and this includes MGM, that have taken advantage of this opportunity for a couple of reasons. The first one was, as you mentioned, you know, the belief that MGM could procure renewable energy at a more cost competitive rate than Nevada Energy can do itself. And then the second is this, you know, underlying tension between large commercial customers and Nevada Energy in terms of what their view is on focusing on lowering the actual electricity costs to their rate base, as opposed to focusing too much on earnings. 
So when it comes to MGM's renewable energy goals specifically, how much does that play into this decision? Like they're basically saying, hey, we can procure all this renewable power on our own much cheaper than Nevada Power can. Nevada Power has issued this green tariff program. Uh, there's this data com- data center company switch that threatened to leave the grid. Nevada Power established this green tariff for uh, corporate customers, but it doesn't seem to be enough for MGM. Yeah, I mean, it, it isn't enough because of the way in which Nevada Energy is trying to engage large commercial customers with renewable energy. So this is in terms of the the magnitude of the service offering and the pricing of it itself. So from MGM's perspective, they have a much more uh, accelerated timeline um, by which they want to actually achieve 100% renewables. And that timeline, from what they understand Nevada Energy's green tariff program to be at this point, is just simply not quick enough. And then the other part to keep in mind is that what Nevada Energy is actually offering large commercial customers is to still pay a premium on their electricity bill to go 100% renewable. And so from MGM's perspective, and from what they understand to be, you know, just how cost competitive large-scale renewables have become specifically for Nevada Energy with the slew of, you know, 40 to $50 per megawatt hour PPAs that the utility has signed, from their perspective, they want to take advantage of that dirt cheap pricing too. And they just can't get that with the green tariff program that the utility is offering. And that's a fantastic point, right? Which is basically that the delta between what MGM thinks it can do on its own um, and what Nevada Energy would do for it was was large enough that it was worth them paying millions of dollars in exit fees um, to leave the grid. I mean, it, it basically makes our case for us, which is that that there is a day that's coming where it's actually not cost effective for these large customers to be served by the utility company. Yeah, my understanding talking to some policymakers in Nevada was that this really caught NV Energy by surprise that MGM would be willing to pay an $86.9 million exit fee, which of course was determined by the commission using only data and input given to them by Envy Energy to begin with, um, but that but that the customer was okay with that. It's like it was more important for the customer to have the choice and the freedom to choose where they were getting their electricity from. So that in conjunction with the cost comparison, I think Envy Energy was surprised. Yeah, absolutely. Just a clarification for folks. We are talking about Envy Energy and Nevada Power. I've been using Nevada Power because that's a subsidiary of Envy Energy. Corey's saying Nevada Energy. Uh, that's the parent company. Nevada Power is the subsidiary. So that just want to make that clear. Secondly, you both made really good points here, right? So Jigger, I think the bigger question is, is this a trend? Does this set a precedent? Is it unique to Nevada? Or are we going to see other corporate customers around the country in states where you know it legally can happen a defect because they can just go out and procure renewables cheaper. And then to your point, Catherine, I mean, it is pretty remarkable that uh, MGM is willing to take this huge uh, multi-million dollar, you know, $80 million hit because it thinks it can get this uh, power cheaper as well. So, you know, two really interesting factors here. Well, it's also pushing competition into a state that doesn't organically or legislatively have competition. And it's coming from the side of the consumer. And I think that leads us to think about what is this going to happen elsewhere with competition on the distributed side? Well, I think that, you know, just to put this in context, right, this is something that 17 plus states have already done. Um, so there's no exit fee, right? So if you live in Texas or 
Georgia or some of these other places, you know, like um, whether it's on the natural gas side or it's on the large scale electric side, um, you have the ability to leave the utility company and go out and procure your own power uh, without paying an exit fee. Right. And then in some of these other states like Nevada, what you're finding is, is that customers so badly want to leave their utility and so badly want to get access to these 20 year PPAs. Um, where they can fix their power prices with renewable energy. Um, you know, in, in MGM's case, uh, you know, I want to just give a shout out to Rose McKinney James, who, you know, we worked with very carefully to like get the solar laws in place. And then she joined MGM's board and has been, you know, stalwart for diversity issues, getting more women on the board, as well as these clean energy issues. I, I just think that this is not some sort of like one off data point. I mean, Microsoft is trying to zero out their carbon footprint by doing this nationwide. The CFO of Microsoft is saying that this is actually part of their core strategy around climate change. You're seeing the same with um, with Apple, and you're seeing the same thing with Google and and others. And so, you know, I mean, Rocky Mountain Institute actually has an entire center dedicated to helping Fortune 500 companies, you know, get off of, um, you know, coal power. And so I just think that this is this is just another example of the utility death spiral in front of us. Right. And the Rocky Mountain Institute and the other organizations involved in that uh, corporate customer strategy, they held a meeting at Microsoft's headquarters. I think it was last week. And they just talked about how these companies are going to go out and go on their own and, and build this stuff. So, Corey, this actually brings me to a really interesting scenario for commercial solar. Up until now, we've thought of commercial industrial solar as on-site rooftop projects. We are starting to see these wholesale retail deals where they're off-site large projects and the the corporation is buying all the power from that project. But are we going to see CNI Solar evolve to a point where it is these off-site deals, and it's just a part of a much bigger strategy where the, 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 corpora- the corporation leaves the utility entirely and just basically forgets a lot of the on-site stuff and signs PPAs for these large centralized projects? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the reality is, is that it's not a, a matter of one path or another for where we see the future of commercial solar adoption. I think what is you know interesting about this particular announcement is that you know offsite large scale renewable procurement does represent at least in the near term an interim approach to rapidly achieve ambitious renewable energy procurement targets you know during a point in time where i think there still are a lot of challenges with scaling customer cited commercial solar development and so there's you know i think a lot of talk on this podcast too in the past about a lot of friction and transaction costs dealing with more customer cited solutions and there is still this huge addressable market for these offsite project development opportunities in these deregulated electricity markets or quasi deregulated i mean if you look at mgm in particular you know their peak demand is at you know around like 174 megawatts and that is a perfect fit to you know, be served in part by, you know, the likes of companies like First Solar and Recurrent that have been, you know, pretty active in targeting these big corporate customers. And so I think in the near term, as you have still some 
lingering uncertainty as to how you scale the customer-sided commercial market, this does represent, I mean, from what we're tracking, over two gigawatts at this point of offsite large-scale commercial projects that are in development. Yeah, and that's just in development. I think when you look at the companies that have already chosen to do solar on their own rooftops and you would say, hey, if they met the rest of their needs by going to these contracts, you're looking at between 50,000 and 100,000 megawatts. Um, this is not a small number, right? This is including school districts, including all CNI customers who've done any rooftop solar at all. If they were to take the balance of their power through wind and solar, through these aggregated, you know, basically virtual community solar projects, um, I mean, that's a lot. That's between 5 and 10% of the total installed base of the U.S. I have a question for you, Corey. We were at our desks yesterday talking about uh, the scenarios. And Catherine, I want to hear your perspective on this as well. It's a policy-related question. This this decision on behalf of MGM speaks to the disconnect between you know, the sluggish timelines in policy and in rate design and the reality of what we're seeing in cost reductions in renewable energy and some of the, 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 the strategies to hedge volatility in the wholesale markets. So do you think this is a good illustration of the disconnect between why policy is not catching up to the reality of what's happening in the market? Well, I was, um, I asked this person specifically that I was interviewing and said, you know, how do we move the utility? How do we move the regulators? They just seem all bound up uh, amongst themselves. And he said, it has to be legislative. It has to come from the state legislature. And the state legislature as as an elected body is going to, you know, their voters are the people who sign sign up for rooftop solar or who are working in those MGM facilities. So... I think that's probably true that the only way that you're going to really, unless you have a really progressive regulator structure, you're going to need to come at it legislatively. Right. But as you look at Nevada, I mean, Nevada is a state that has a really high you know, power concentration in terms of political power. Um, and they passed a law to allow this. I mean, it just seems very American for people to pursue competition. Right. I mean, I just think that the utilities are going to continue to lose this battle where they say, no, you know, maintaining a sort of Soviet communist like command and control structure without any choice is the preferred option. It just seems like they're going to keep losing that battle. Yeah. And one other thing to keep in mind, too, is that the actual roadmap towards, you know, roping and additional renewable procurement from the utilities perspective, you know, does include some very multi-year kinds of uh, regulatory proceedings that do make it really challenging for companies like MGM to accelerate that, you know, their own solar and renewable procurement timeline. So for this particular example, you know, a lot of the debate was from MGM's perspective about how do you um, actually meet MGM's respective renewable procurement targets under this, you know, three-year integrated resource plan that NV Energy um, ultimately uses as a guiding uh, policy mechanism for roping in additional renewables. And so there's issues related to rate case proceedings that happen on a multi-year basis, resource plans that happen on a multi-year basis that really muddy the waters in the actual regulatory timeline, whereas it's so much more simpler for ultimately MGM to partner with an entity like Tanaska, who they are going to partner with under this deregulated format, to just within a one-year timeline really accelerate their progress towards ramping up this procurement of large-scale solar. A lot of people watching this trend may think that this is 
you know, karma coming back at NV Energy for supporting such a drastic change to net metering. What kind of linkages between the net metering debate and these decisions from large corporations to defect uh, do we see? Like, is there a direct link? Yeah, and I, there is a direct link in terms of the utilities understanding how they need to engage customers on a solar product offering. And that, you know, I think what you want to put in perspective is the fact that this one large commercial customer, um, I think as you mentioned at the beginning of this, represents you know, 5% of Nevada Energy's retail sales. The current number of rooftop solar systems that are operating right now in Nevada Energy territory is, you know, well under half that total, you know, retail sales in terms of, you know, expected annual PV production. And so when you talk about, you know, the concept of a utility death spiral, the, the other issue that doesn't really get addressed in the role solar plays in the future of utility business models is from large commercial customers' perspectives, um, understanding that what they want is not necessarily going to be a part of this rooftop solar debate. They're going to potentially want these larger scale solutions. And, you know, utilities like Nevada Energy have done some homework on what kind of product offering makes sense for large commercial customers that want something along these lines. But it's clear there's some, you know, room for additional uh, learning to understand, you know, the kinds of timelines and the kinds of pricing. That's a very politically sensitive way of saying that you just held them back a year in school. I mean, you know, the bottom line here is that that the Nevada regulators were told by NV Energy to disregard the E3 um, value of solar study. And, you know, what's what's going on is basically, you know, the regulators and NV Energy fooled themselves into their own crap. And, you know, MGM basically said, you know what, we don't believe those studies that you threw out and we don't believe the value of solar tariff that you did. And we're willing to bet $86 million that you're wrong. And now John Wellinghoff is coming back with his own data um, and sharing it with NV Energy and the regulators. And I think they will have a much um, more, you know, like I think they will be much more attentive to John Wellinghoff's proposal now uh, because of this announcement. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, I I guess... You could have you know a whole other debate and a whole other podcast on the the rooftop solar net metering situation there. I guess my point was simply to you know recognize the fact that there hasn't been a lot of attention or as much attention paid to the future of um, solar product offerings for large commercial customers from utilities perspectives. And I think from that perspective, that's a big part of what you know caught Nevada Energy by surprise. In that, you know, they had this green tariff program and they thought it would be enough. And clearly it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just one more thing, though. I mean, I would like I mean, I'm actively looking at two geothermal projects in Nevada. The fact that MGM has just left and, you know, and has a broker in the middle here, um, those geothermal projects could get PPAs from MGM. Right. So it's not just solar. I think that all of these renewable energy technologies are completely, you know, spinning their head around going, oh, my God, I don't need to work through the utility. That's awesome. So do you think uh, Nevada Power or NV Energy is doing a lot of soul searching right now? I think they're doing a lot of soul searching because, you know, this isn't the first example where you saw a company, you know, make an effort within Nevada Energy's customer base to exit the grid because of their renewable energy procurement targets. So this started last year when Switch, the data center company, initially proposed to exit the grid as well. And in addition to MGM, you have... um, the Sands and Wind casinos as well 
that have also considered exiting the grid and when will, in fact, um, at least at this point, uh, exit the grid later this year too. And so I think what the sort of moment of reconciliation for a company like Nevada Energy is really understanding, you know, what are they doing right now to offer a competitive renewable energy product offering to large commercial customers? And is it really enough? And so under the current um, net metering paradigm that they have for, uh, you know, DG customers and under the current you know, green energy or green tariff program that they're offering to large commercial customers, it's simply just not enough because the timelines that corporations have for actually meeting their respective targets just simply can't happen with the nature and the scope of these programs as they currently stand. Well, I, I don't like to throw around the term utility death spiral too much, but I do think it's, um, you know, it, it can be used in, in this context if this trend continues. I think it's appropriate to to consider that term. Really interesting trend here that we're going to see play out, and, and we'll see if it takes over in other states or continues in Nevada. Corey Honeyman is the associate director of our solar research practice at GTM. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. For two decades now, activist shareholders have been pressuring the world's biggest oil company, ExxonMobil, to recognize the risk of climate change. Every resolution so far has been rejected. But going into yesterday's shareholder meeting, things were different from past years. The company's facing multiple investigations from state attorneys general about its alleged cover-up of climate science from the 70s. We talked about that on a show last year. The international community agreed on emissions targets for the first time last December, making climate regulations much more real. And with climate scientists issuing increasingly scary warnings about a tipping point, shareholder groups outside the traditional environmental realm are pressuring Exxon as well. But alas, shareholders rejected all climate resolutions this week, and many other large publicly traded oil companies are doing the same. So are these companies setting themselves up to fail when the carbon bubble bursts, or are they more prepared than we think, as they are claiming? Jigger, firstly, did you expect a different outcome from the Exxon meeting? Yeah, so I mean, I just think that when you look at New York City controllers, uh, Scott Stringer's um, uh, resolution, which did pass with 62% of the vote, um, it basically allows minority shareholders to nominate outside candidates to the board, which is a huge shift. And I think it's what climate activists are going to use now um, as their way of getting an independent voice on the board. Um, I also thought it was really telling that when you listen to um, the presentation that the Exxon um, management team made, it was literally stripped out of a Bill Gates speech. It was basically that technology isn't ready to deploy, um, but we're investing heavily in R&D. And when it is ready, we're going to be ready to, you know, pounce on that opportunity, which so I'm not sure that Bill Gates welcomes Exxon's company. Wait, so what you're saying is you think my characterization is, is wrong then, that, that there was a total failure? Yeah, I don't think it was a total failure. In fact, I thought it was um, as successful as you could get, right? I mean, in these things, you know, the ability for someone just to win the shareholder vote is pretty low, right? So the fact that they were able to pass this outside board member uh, piece that could be nominated by a minority shareholder, I think, is the camel's nose under the tent that's going to be used to 
you know, radically change the dynamic with these oil companies. Yeah, it seems that um, CalPERS, which is um, has a billion dollars, I guess, of Exxon stock, is really hoping to try to work from the inside. And although a lot of these folks are being uh, criticized for moving too slowly, um, you know, it's kind of like a death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Um, they really do feel like being inside the process is better than being outside of it. So let's take a look at what these activist groups were actually calling for. They wanted Exxon to declare a moral responsibility to address climate change. They wanted to elect, specifically elect a board member with environmental expertise. And it sounds like they didn't get exactly that, but there could be an opportunity to bring someone on, an outsider onto the board. Um, They wanted Exxon to basically like buy back stock and make the company smaller and pay issue dividends to investors instead of, you know, investing in more fossil fuel reserves. Uh, they also wanted, well, they, and then the last one was, uh, you know, really assessing in a comprehensive way how the, the global action to slow climate change, uh, you know, the, the, the agreement that we saw in December would affect Exxon's business. Yeah, but I mean, just to be you know clear, I mean, I don't think it's that they're saying that Exxon should be smaller. I think when you look at the data since 2008, um, almost every oil company has actually had a negative rate of return on investment on their investments, except for Exxon, which has had a slightly positive rate of return on investment. Um, but it would have been far more profitable for them to just do share buybacks or to invest in renewable energy than it was to invest in more oil exploration. I mean, even at $100 a barrel, a lot of these projects, deep sea drilling, Arctic drilling, you know, et cetera, um, you know, ExxonMobil, you know, paid over $70 billion for XOM, um, you know, for fracking and, you know, has lost their shirt on that. So, I mean, I just think that, you know, largely what they're saying is you guys really suck at deploying capital, at least in the last six or seven years, and it would have been better for you to buy back shares. So I think environmental groups, while they are clearly making this an issue that people are paying attention to, they they saw the rejection of some of these resolutions as a failure. But there is a counter argument to this, right? I think you alluded to this, Jigger, that there there have been some important developments. Um, and also Exxon is kind of recognizing the importance of climate change. You know, it has a statement on its website that says, we have the same concerns as people everywhere. This is a direct quote. And that is how to provide the world with the energy it needs while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The risk of climate change is clear and the risk warrants action. And Exxon, Chevron, other leading oil companies all have an internal carbon tax um, that they use when gauging whether you know they should be embarking on new projects. So I know, you, Jigger, you think a lot of their new activity has been a failure, but they are saying that they're putting in place a reasonable carbon tax when evaluating these investments. There are signs that they're moving in this direction, even though these shareholder amendments are rejected. No, but I I think this is bigger, and I'd love to hear Catherine's take on this. I I think, you know, Politico did a great piece about how ExxonMobil has been ignoring these things for a long time, you know, and basically in November, you know, dispatched, you know, sort of top lobbyists to Capitol Hill on an urgent mission, which was basically to tamp down this escalating campaign at making Exxon the next tobacco industry. Yeah, I mean, they knew and we've had we've had a lot of discussion about this from Inside Climate News Story, which is that they've known about this since the 80s. And so for them to just start doing it, it seems like Exxon 
has a, like a special um, need to step up here. Speaking of Inside Climate News, I just want to give them a shout out for the reporting that they've done on both uncovering Exxon's previous climate research and on documenting these historical resolutions. So Inside Climate News had this great story last week or this month sometime, and they evaluated 400 shareholder resolutions at, for, for oil companies, and 113 of them involved climate change, carbon restrictions, um, the competitiveness of renewable energy. So uh, roughly 30 of those never got to a vote, and the remaining ones that were put to a vote were all rejected. So to, that just puts it into some historical context that this isn't just Exxon. I think Exxon is, you know, considered one of the worst actors, but many oil publicly traded oil companies have been rejecting these resolutions for years. Yeah, but it's not I mean, when you look at the politics of this, this isn't about facts, right? This is about consumer sentiment, momentum, and whether you can really get enough activists on the playing field to pressure their politicians to hold hearings and to start this process, right? I mean, you know, it's clearly possible to link actual people who've died from ozone and other things uh, to oil burning. And I think that if Exxon can actually be linked directly to knowing that the product that they were you know, pulling out of the ground actually could kill people in the future and did nothing about it. I mean, there's liability there. Um, and that that's a big deal. Well, Jigger, politics is maybe a path to a solution or the obstruction, but, but the underlying, whole underlying um, incentive is money and how much are they making for themselves and their shareholders? Well, the, the politics of this are getting more intense. Congress has now decided to investigate the investigators. And I know that the, you know, the attorney general in New York is investigating Exxon. And uh, there are investigations also in California, Maryland, and the Virgin Islands. And uh, federal lawmakers now want to investigate those investigations. So this is working its way through the political realm in very interesting ways. Um, I will finally just ask if you guys have an opinion on whether this impacts the divestment movement at all. I know people like Bill Kibben have said, well, look at this. They rejected yet and again these shareholder resolutions that are basic common sense on climate change. If there ever was an argument for divestment, this is it. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, I think you're going to get some of each. I think you're going to get some like CalPERS who want to work it from the inside and some who divest. I, I just think there are going to be different ways that people approach it. I don't know, Jigger, what do you think? Yeah, look, I've never been a big fan of the divestment movement. I just think that you know, it's really investing that matters, not divesting. Um, most people who are divesting are divesting just because coal and oil stocks suck right now, and owning them hasn't been a really profitable um, strategy uh, over the last five years. But I, but I think that, you know, the, the bigger thing here is trying to figure out, um, you know, what all the externalities are that we're paying for, right? I mean, you know, the reason why Medicare budgets and lots of other stuff are expensive is that there are a lot of companies that are dumping pollution onto the general population and expecting the healthcare system to pick up the tab, as opposed to these companies who are producing products that create real negative health outcomes. Um, and so whether you want to directly talk about climate change or not, the health outcomes are real. And EPA has actually done a good job of 
measuring a lot of these things. And so I think that whether it's the activity around the divest movement or whether it's actually the fact that solar and wind and other technologies have gotten so much cheaper recently in electric vehicles, um, I think we've hit a critical mass where um, you've got folks pounding them on the environmental side and you've got solutions providers um, pounding them you know, for a chance on the other side. Yep, totally agree. And even though these resolutions didn't pass, that's basically what I was referring to in my intro to this segment, which was the conditions were pretty different this time around. And even though, you know, they didn't get, all the activists didn't get what they wanted, there's a lot of there's a lot of new stuff here and these companies are under unprecedented pressure. Speaking of uh pressure, let's talk about Lake Mead. The West could be facing a water crisis. On May 18th, Lake Mead, which is the reservoir created by the Hoover Dam that serves over 20 million people with water, dropped to record lows. The lake is down to roughly 38% of its original capacity. Agricultural demand, drought, low snowpack, and, of course, a warming planet are putting major strain on America's biggest reservoir. And some are now talking about emergency measures to address the problem and curb water use. The Hoover Dam has also undergone a lot of upgrades in order to keep producing power at such low water levels. So let's talk about the uh, politics of this, what's going to happen both in the short term and long term, what's going to happen to the Hoover Dam, a lot to unpack. Catherine, where do things stand in the states served by Lake Mead? Yeah, so uh, the Hoover Dam provides about 19% of the power goes to Arizona, 23% to Nevada, and 28.5% to California. And and it provides 1.3 million people with power, but 25 million people with water. So it, it has both power and water. And the issues out there with the Colorado River are extremely complex. So you have the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead that have been there since the 30s, Um, and trying to make sure that you get agriculture and all other types of water uses to all of these southwestern very very dry states and then about 300 miles in the upper basin of the Colorado River you have uh, the Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell that serve kind of some of the same states but also New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado and between those two the water levels have significantly dropped. Another piece of the puzzle is that in order to move all of that water that is serving the agriculture and other communities of these dry, dry states is Navajo Generating Station, which is a 2.25 gigawatt coal plant um, that's like 30% of Arizona's emissions. But that's used to pump water through this you know, series of aqueducts and canals that move a, a one and a half million acres per feet per year of acre feet per year of water through central Arizona. So this is a really complex issue that has to do with water and power emissions and and it's all wrapped up as you say in the politics but policy and planning piece of it but also in this incredible engineering feat of trying to move a lot of power and water into these states that don't naturally have water yeah the politics of this could get pretty intense so california has first water rights um and it could come in and voluntarily scale back the amount of water it draws from Lake Mead by about 8%, and that would alleviate some pressure on Arizona and Nevada. Arizona is at the end of the line. When you know you look at the, the water negotiations from many decades ago, Arizona was basically like pushed to the back of the bus, and that state has last water rights. So if Lake Mead 
continues to drop, California in the short term might be okay, but in Arizona, they, they, they could lose 13 to 15% of their allocation. So farmers there could be in a world of trouble. And, you know, these cities in Arizona and Nevada, like they wouldn't exist without these dam projects. I think that's important to remember. Yeah. So the Central Arizona Project, which was started in 1968 under President Johnson, um, which created this series of aqueducts and canals serving Arizona, works really hard on water efficiency and trying to make sure that they that in Arizona they're using water as efficiently as possible. And they've made pretty big strides in reducing by 30 percent how much they use the issue is that just like you said, the water trickles down to them from California. Another solution that I've heard is um, the proposal to get rid of Glen Canyon Dam and get rid of Lake Powell. And if they did that, all of a sudden you'd increase the water for the Southwest by 6% immediately. Because Lake Powell is just like a sieve. They lose like 2.6% of the annual flow of the entire Colorado River just seeping into the fissures of the sandstone of Lake Powell. So that is another proposal that's out there. What's crazy to me about this situation is how many measures have been put into place in the region served by this dam to conserve water, both on the agricultural side and on the commercial and residential side. Nevada, uh, and particularly Las Vegas, has been really progressive on this front. Las Vegas gets the vast majority of its water from this reservoir. And, you know, they've done a really good job of improving their water conservation efforts. But when you look at projected demand for water in this region, it's continuing to go up. And you look at the projections for water levels on Lake Mead and Lake Powell, they continue to go down. So the trend is really scary in spite of these really progressive measures that many would call a success. Yeah, I think you're going to have they're going to have to undertake a much bigger planning process because when all of this was constructed and it really is an engineering feat what these dams and lakes and aqueduct systems have done and what they've enabled um, but but the planning never took into account the fact that they could have 16 years of drought and that the water could get as low as it is. They just did not expect it. I just find the whole hubris of all this stuff to be shocking. I mean, what I do just, you mean? Well, I just think that, you know, like Las Vegas has add a, added a half a million people to its population over the last few years, right? I mean, when you think about Los Angeles, which is the same, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense for people to live there, but they live there because, you know, you're trucking and you're you're bringing water down, um, you know, from the Sierras. And, and so at some point, you just sort of say, you know, is this going to be worth doing for the next 200 years, right? Like, I mean, at what point do you just pull up stakes and say, like, you know, in California, for instance, there are people who have water rights who are who are growing almonds in the middle of the desert because they're saying, well, we have water rights and might as well use it. Um, when it makes no sense to do that, right? And you're right. I mean, once they actually rationalize the policy, all those towns will just go belly up and leave, right? There's no reason for people to live there except that they have water rights. And so there's all of this weirdness that we're dealing with because of a hundred years plus of water rights law. And um, I don't know how sustainable all of these like duct tape measures are going to be at some point. I think someone's going to have to rip the whole thing up. Yeah, that's totally fair. I'm not much of a doomsdayer um, when it comes to like full societal collapse. I believe that communities can adapt, but it's, it's fair to talk about that scenario now that we're looking at these trends, these very stark trends. And this one data point, this record low water level is just yet one more indicator of how unsustainable the whole situation in that region is. Um, so there are a few different ways this could go. Uh, Catherine, you mentioned 
just getting rid of some other dam projects. There are other options here. The states are going to negotiate this. So they might try to figure out different allocations. The federal government could step in. I mean, the federal government has authority here. Congress could walk in and just say, like, look, here's how we're going to divvy it up. Uh, or it could go to the courts, which would go really slow, and it wouldn't be a great option. I guess there is another option, which is, like, to have real water wars, which we saw in the 30s. But uh, I'm being a little facetious on that. Well, and the James Bond movie that came out, what, like, eight years ago was about a water war, wasn't it? I am not a big James Bond fan, so I defer to those out there who are uh, James Bond aficionados to know whether that's true or not. The last point is on the Hoover Dam. Many years ago, about five or six years ago, when people started really raising alarm bells about the water levels on Lake Mead, you know, the there were a lot of concerns about whether the Hoover Dam could continue operating. And this is a really important source of power because it provides this peaking power at like 1.8 cents per kilowatt hour. So it's it's pretty cheap. Um and they've they've had to invest about $15 million into upgrades of the Hoover, Hoover Dam over the last five years. And it has been kind of a success story, right? Despite the challenges, people thought the Hoover Dam wouldn't be producing power by now. But with new efficient turbines, with these new gates and these wickets that basically target the water better, with software that runs these wickets and the turbines more efficiently... They've been able to keep power output despite these dropping water levels. So there's like kind of a success story in there. Although, uh, you know, the water levels could keep dropping and the doomsday scenario for this power plant may still be on the horizon. Well, I had a chance a few months ago to visit Voith Hydropower up in Pennsylvania, and 90% of their work is just refurbishing turbines from existing hydro plants. Like some of them were 100-year-old blades that they were refinishing and refurbishing um, and just maintaining. And it was pretty impressive that they were able to do that. Well, um, that's a good place to end it. Let's finish the show. Tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, what do you got for a story this week? So as many of our listeners know, I'm a huge fan of Michael Noble and the work of Fresh Energy up in Minnesota. Um, What they've recently done, which I think is really impressive, is that their agricultural leaders uh, got together with Fresh Energy, Autobahn, and others to establish a statewide standard for use of the land under and around ground-mounted solar projects. Um, so it you know, really talks about how you preserve um, habitats for bees and monarchs and pheasants and songbirds and you know, an abundant, high-quality foraging habitat. And so I just want to commend those guys. I mean, now that solar is really becoming an industrial product that's, you know, that's uh, spreading across the land, um, it's important, I think, to have these kinds of standards in place. There's plenty of land available, and we certainly just don't need to, you know, um, put solar on uh, this kind of precious habitat. That's great to know because, I mean, I found just working in the wind industry also that, that siting and permitting issues can be much more expensive than just the installation of the project. So that's terrific. Catherine, what do you got for a story this week? 
Uh, a bill was just introduced moments ago, H.R. 5350 in the House of Representatives. The lead on it was Congressman Honda from Silicon Valley. He was joined by Congressman Reed, who is on Ways and Means and for a Republican from upstate New York, uh, with Congressman Gibson, also from New York, and a Republican in Tacano, a Democrat from California. This is the fourth time that this tax credit for energy storage has been introduced. It's called the Energy Storage for Grid Resilience and Modernization Act. Um, it is, it's modeled after and, and would amend Section 48 and Section 25D so that it would give energy storage a separate standalone provision in the tax code, uh, just the same as solar and other, other technologies have. So we're hoping that the fourth time will be a charm, uh, working on this um, to, to try to see if we can get something done uh, this year. I have two quick stories. One was a great uh, narrative story from the Los Angeles Times on North Korea's solar market. I didn't realize how big North Korea's solar market was. They don't have official numbers, so that that's not in the story. But the reporter went and checked out uh, the the solar PV and solar hot water boom in that country, fueled by cheap Chinese panels and actually pretty ambitious government targets because of uh, how poorly people are served by the grid there. So she was describing, you know, nearly every rooftop peppered with solar panels. Um, I think that electricity from solar is still kind of a bit player in the country, but in general, deployment has just shot up and has um, become one of the leading sources of new capacity in North Korea in recent years. Then, as we speak, Donald Trump is in North Dakota talking about energy. He's going to outline some sort of energy policy. God knows what he's going to be talking about. So it's uh, 2 o'clock Eastern time here, and he is probably taking the stage right now. So depending on what he says, we may talk about that next week. Um, Keep your eyes on the reporting coming from that. He may have some uh, worthwhile quotes to pay attention to. And uh, that ends the show. Thanks for listening. If you like the program, consider passing it on to a friend to a colleague. Give us a review and a rating in iTunes. We appreciate you helping spread the word. It goes a long way, both sending links to your friends, tweeting them out, and giving us reviews and ratings. It goes a long way to getting us new listeners. We also want your emails. We like your questions, your comments, your show ideas. Uh, Some of the show ideas that we get for this show come from our listeners. Email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And of course, you can find us Everywhere podcasts are downloaded, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. I mentioned last week we're on NPR One, and then there are so many other apps out there that you can put on your phone and just grab our RSS feed. Um, Thanks for subscribing. Catherine, have a good week and weekend. Thanks. It's Memorial Day weekend, so enjoy the three days. Indeed. You too, Jigger. Talk to you soon. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.
From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. In this episode, heck with rooftop solar. Utilities have a much bigger problem to worry about. Their commercial customers ditching them. MGM Resorts plans to stop buying electricity from Nevada Power, dealing a major blow to the utility. Is it a precedent? Then Exxon rejects shareholder demands on climate. We'll look at the latest salvo over the oil giant's carbon accounting. And we will end on a low note. Lake Mead, America's biggest reservoir serving over 20 million people in the West, hits its lowest level ever. Are water wars on the horizon? Who better to discuss these issues with than Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my regular co-hosts. Catherine's with us from Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Yes, and good news. Summer has arrived here. Finally. Although we're going to get a week of rain next week. So you've uh, given it to us. Aw. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Jigger Shaw is in New York. He just ran out of his taxi to his home studio. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Good. Well, regular listeners of this show might think that based on our conversations, the biggest threat to electric utilities is solar or a combination of rooftop solar and storage or microgrids. But power companies may have a bigger problem on their hands, corporate customer defection. Last week, two of the biggest Las Vegas casino companies, MGM Resorts and Wynn, filed to leave Nevada Power and set off to buy power on their own. MGM has particularly strong renewable energy goals, and this is a signal that the company thinks it can procure that clean energy cheaper than the utility can deliver it. This is a big deal. MGM represents 5% of Nevada Power's electricity demand. And here to discuss the implications of this defection is Corey Honeyman, the associate director of GTM's U.S. solar research practice. He's been following the commercial customer class closely. Corey, welcome. How are you? Doing great. Glad to be here. So what are the casinos trying to do here? I just want to understand, like, what the process of ditching a utility is like. How does it actually work, particularly in Nevada? Yeah. Um, the best way to describe it is sort of thinking about a really protracted and messy breakup with a long-standing relationship that you have with someone. Because there's a lot of moving parts, and even when you initially say that you want to end that relationship, it still you know spills over months after that initial conversation. So... What happened here was MGM took advantage of longstanding legislation that was passed back in the early 2000s that allow for large customers to leave the grid as long as it has a uh, neutral impact on the rest of the ratepayers. And so this was initially legislation that happened because there was, uh, with the energy crisis back in the early 2000s, they had this legislation specifically targeting these larger commercial customer types. And so the legacy legislation has, you know, still been in place and there haven't been a lot of large customers that have taken advantage of this bill. But over the past year, there's been a handful of customers, and this includes MGM, that have taken advantage of this opportunity for a couple of reasons. The first one was, as you mentioned, you know, the belief that MGM could procure renewable energy at a more cost competitive rate than Nevada Energy can do itself. And then the second is this you know, underlying tension between large commercial customers and Nevada Energy in terms of what their view is on focusing on lowering the actual electricity costs to their rate base as opposed to focusing too much on earnings. 
So when it comes to MGM's renewable energy goals specifically, how much does that play into this decision? Like they're basically saying, hey, we can procure all this renewable power on our own much cheaper than Nevada Power can. Nevada Power has issued this green tariff program. Uh, there's this data, com- data center company switch that threatened to leave the grid. Nevada Power established this green tariff for uh, corporate customers, but it doesn't seem to be enough for MGM. Yeah, I mean, it isn't enough because of the way in which Nevada Energy is trying to engage large commercial customers with renewable energy. So this is in terms of the the magnitude of the service offering and the pricing of it itself. So from MGM's perspective, they have a much more uh, accelerated timeline um, by which they want to actually achieve 100% renewables. And that timeline, from what they understand Nevada Energy's green tariff program to be at this point, is just simply not quick enough. And then the other part to keep in mind is that what Nevada Energy is actually offering large commercial customers is to still pay a premium on their electricity bill to go 100% renewable. And so from MGM's perspective, and from what they understand to be, you know, just how cost competitive large-scale renewables have become specifically for Nevada Energy with the slew of, you know, 40 to $50 per megawatt hour PPAs that the utility has signed, from their perspective, they want to take advantage of that dirt cheap pricing too, and they just can't get that with the green tariff program that the utility is offering. And that's a fantastic point, right? Which is basically that the delta between what MGM thinks it can do on its own um, and what Nevada Energy would do for it was was large enough that it was worth them paying millions of dollars in exit fees um, to leave the grid. I mean, it, it basically makes our case for us, which is that that there is a day that's coming where it's actually not cost effective for these large customers to be served by the utility company. Yeah, my understanding talking to some policymakers in Nevada was that this really caught Envy Energy by surprise that MGM would be willing to pay an $86.9 million exit fee, which of course was determined by the commission using only data and input given to them by Envy Energy to begin with, um, but that but that the customer was okay with that. It's like it was more important for the customer to have the choice and the freedom to choose where they were getting their electricity from. So that in conjunction with the cost comparison, I think Envy Energy was surprised. Yeah, absolutely. Just a clarification for folks. We are talking about Envy Energy and Nevada Power. I've been using Nevada Power because that's a subsidiary of Envy Energy. Corey's saying Nevada Energy. Uh, that's the parent company. Nevada Power is the subsidiary. So that just want to make that clear. Secondly, you both made really good points here, right? So Jigger, I think the bigger question is, is this a trend? Does this set a precedent? Is it unique to Nevada? Or are we going to see other corporate customers around the country in states where you know it legally can happen a defect because they can just go out and procure renewables cheaper. And then to your point, Catherine, I mean, it is pretty remarkable that uh, MGM is willing to take this huge uh, multi-million dollar, you know, $80 million hit because it thinks it can get this uh, power cheaper as well. So, you know, two really interesting factors here. Well, it's also pushing competition into a state that doesn't organically or legislatively have competition. And it's coming from the side of the consumer. And I think that leads us to think about what is this going to happen elsewhere with competition on the distributed side? Well, I think that, you know, just to put this in context, right, this is something that 17 plus states have already done. 
Um, so there's no exit fee, right? So if you live in Texas or Georgia or some of these other places, you know, like um, whether it's on the natural gas side or it's on the large scale electric side, um, you have the ability to leave the utility company and go out and procure your own power uh, without paying an exit fee. Right. And then in some of these other states like Nevada, what you're finding is, is that customers so badly want to leave their utility and so badly want to get access to these 20 year PPAs um, where they can fix their power prices with renewable energy. Um, you know, in, in MGM's case, uh, you know, I want to just give a shout out to Rose McKinney James, who, you know, we worked with very carefully to like get the solar laws in place. And then she joined MGM's board and has been, you know, stalwart for diversity issues, getting more women on the board as well as these clean energy issues. I, I just think that this is not some sort of like one-off data point. I mean, Microsoft is trying to zero out their carbon footprint by doing this nationwide. The CFO of Microsoft is saying that this is actually part of their core strategy around climate change. You're seeing the same with um, with Apple, and you're seeing the same thing with Google and, and others. And so, you know, I mean, Rocky Mountain Institute actually has an entire center dedicated to helping Fortune 500 companies, you know, get off of, um, you know, coal power. And so I just think that this is this is just another example of the utility death spiral in front of us. Right. And the Rocky Mountain Institute and the other organizations involved in that uh, corporate customer strategy, they held a meeting at Microsoft's headquarters. I think it was last week. And they just talked about how these companies are going to go out and go on their own and, and build this stuff. So, Corey, this actually brings me to a really interesting scenario for commercial solar. Up until now, we've thought of commercial industrial solar as on-site rooftop projects. We are starting to see these wholesale retail deals where they're off-site large projects and the the corporation is buying all the power from that project. But are we going to see CNI Solar evolve to a point where it is these off-site deals, and it's just a part of a much bigger strategy where the the the, the corporate the corporation leaves the utility entirely and just basically forgets a lot of the on-site stuff and signs PPAs for these large centralized projects. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the reality is is that it's not a a matter of one path or another for where we see the future of commercial solar adoption. I think what is you know interesting about this particular announcement is that you know offsite large scale renewable procurement does represent at least in the near term an interim approach to rapidly achieve ambitious renewable energy procurement targets you know during a point in time where i think there still are a lot of challenges with scaling customer cited commercial solar development and so there's, you know, I think a lot of talk on this podcast too in the past about a lot of friction and transaction costs dealing with more customer-sided solutions. And there is still this huge addressable market for these off-site project development opportunities in these deregulated electricity markets or quasi-deregulated. I mean, if you look at MGM in particular, you know, their peak demand is at, you know, around like 174 megawatts. And that is a perfect fit to you know, be served in part by, you know, the likes of companies like First Solar and Recurrent that have been, you know, pretty active in targeting these big corporate customers. And so I think in the near term, as you have still some lingering uncertainty as to how you scale the customer-sided commercial market, this does represent, I mean, from what we're tracking, 
over two gigawatts at this point of offsite large scale commercial projects that are in development. Yeah, and that's just in development. I think when you look at the companies that have already chosen to do solar on their own rooftops and you would say, hey, if they met the rest of their needs by going to these contracts, you're looking at between 50,000 and 100,000 megawatts. Um, this is not a small number, right? This is including school districts, including all CNI customers who've done any rooftop solar at all. If they were to take the balance of their power through wind and solar, through these aggregated, you know, basically virtual community solar projects, um, I mean, that's a lot. That's between 5 and 10% of the total installed base of the U.S. I have a question for you, Corey. We were at our desks yesterday talking about uh, the scenarios. And Catherine, I want to hear your perspective on this as well. It's a policy-related question. This this decision on behalf of MGM speaks to the disconnect between, you know, the sluggish timelines in policy and in rate design and the reality of what we're seeing in cost reductions in renewable energy and some of the, 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 the strategies to hedge volatility in the wholesale markets. So do you think this is a good illustration of the disconnect between why policy is not catching up to the reality of what's happening in the market? Well, I was, um, I asked this person specifically that I was interviewing and said, you know, how do we move the utility? How do we move the regulators? They just seem all bound up uh, amongst themselves. And he said, it has to be legislative. It has to come from the state legislature. And the state legislature as as an elected body is going to, you know, their voters are the people who sign sign up for rooftop solar or who are working in those MGM facilities. So... I think that's probably true that the only way that you're going to really, unless you have a really progressive regulator structure, you're going to need to come at it legislatively. Right. But as you look at Nevada, I mean, Nevada is a state that has a really high, you know, power concentration in terms of political power. um, And they passed a law to allow this. I mean, it just seems very American for people to pursue competition. Right. I mean, I just think that the utilities are going to continue to lose this battle where they say, no, you know, maintaining a sort of Soviet communist like command and control structure without any choice is the preferred option. It just seems like they're going to keep losing that battle. Yeah. And one other thing to keep in mind, too, is that the actual roadmap towards, you know, roping and additional renewable procurement from the utilities perspective, you know, does include some very multi-year kinds of uh, regulatory proceedings that do make it really challenging for companies like MGM to accelerate that, you know, their own solar and renewable procurement timeline. So for this particular example, you know, a lot of the debate was from MGM's perspective about how do you um, actually meet MGM's respective renewable procurement targets under this, you know, three-year integrated resource plan that NV Energy um, ultimately uses as a guiding uh, policy mechanism for roping in additional renewables. And so there's issues related to rate case proceedings that happen on a multi-year basis, resource plans that happen on a multi-year basis that really muddy the waters in the actual regulatory timeline, whereas it's so much more simpler for ultimately MGM to partner with an entity like Tanaska, who they are going to partner with under this deregulated format, to just within a one-year timeline really accelerate their progress towards ramping up this procurement of large-scale solar. A lot of people watching this trend may think that this is, you know, karma coming back at NV Energy for supporting such a drastic change to net metering. What kind of linkages between the net metering debate and these decisions from large corporations to defect 
do we see? Like, is there a direct link? Yeah, and I, there is a direct link in terms of the utilities understanding how they need to engage customers on a solar product offering. And that, you know, I think what you want to put in perspective is the fact that this one large commercial customer, um, I think, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, represents you know, 5% of Nevada Energy's retail sales. The current number of rooftop solar systems that are operating right now in Nevada Energy territory is, you know, well under half that total, you know, retail sales in terms of, you know, expected annual PV production. And so when you talk about, you know, the concept of a utility death spiral, the the other issue that doesn't really get addressed in the role solar plays in the future of utility business models is from large commercial customers' perspectives, um, understanding that what they want is not necessarily going to be a part of this rooftop solar debate. They're going to potentially want these larger scale solutions. And, you know, utilities like Nevada Energy have done some homework on what kind of product offering makes sense for large commercial customers that want something along these lines. But it's clear there's some, you know, room for additional uh, learning to understand, you know, the kinds of timelines and the kinds of pricing. That's a very politically sensitive way of saying that you just held them back a year in school. I mean, you know, the bottom line here is that that the Nevada regulators were told by NV Energy to disregard the E3 um, value of solar study. And, you know, what's what's going on is basically, you know, the regulators and NV Energy fooled themselves into their own crap. And, you know, MGM basically said, you know what, we don't believe those studies that you threw out and we don't believe the value of solar tariff that you did. And we're willing to bet $86 million that you're wrong. And now John Wellinghoff is coming back with his own data um, and sharing it with NV Energy and the regulators. And I think they will have a much um, more, you know, like I think they will be much more attentive to John Wellinghoff's proposal now uh, because of this announcement. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, I, I guess... You could have you know a whole other debate and a whole other podcast on the the rooftop solar net metering situation there. I guess my point was simply to you know recognize the fact that there hasn't been a lot of attention or as much attention paid to the future of um, solar product offerings for large commercial customers from utilities perspectives. And I think from that perspective, that's a big part of what you know caught Nevada Energy by surprise. In that, you know, they had this green tariff program and they thought it would be enough. And clearly it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just one more thing, though. I mean, I would like I mean, I'm actively looking at two geothermal projects in Nevada. The fact that MGM has just left and, you know, and has a broker in the middle here, um, those geothermal projects could get PPAs from MGM. Right. So it's not just solar. I think that all of these renewable energy technologies are completely you know, spinning their head around going, oh, my God, I don't need to work through the utility. That's awesome. So do you think uh, Nevada Power or NV Energy is doing a lot of soul searching right now? I think they're doing a lot of soul searching because, you know, this isn't the first example where you saw a company, you know, make an effort within Nevada Energy's customer base to exit the grid because of their renewable energy procurement targets. So this started last year when Switch, the data center company, initially proposed to exit the grid as well. And in addition to MGM, you have... Um, the Sands and Wynn casinos as well that have also considered exiting the grid. And Wynn will, in fact, um, at least at this point, uh, exit the grid later this year too. And so I think what the sort of moment of reconciliation for a company like Nevada Energy is 
really understanding, you know, what are they doing right now to offer a competitive renewable energy product offering to large commercial customers? And is it really enough? And so under the current um, net metering paradigm that they have for, uh, you know, DG customers and under the current you know, green energy or green tariff program that they're offering to large commercial customers, it's simply just not enough because the timelines that corporations have for actually meeting their respective targets just simply can't happen with the nature and the scope of these programs as they currently stand. Well, I, I don't like to throw around the term utility death spiral too much, but I do think it's, um, you know, it, it can be used in, in this context if this trend continues. I think it's appropriate to to consider that term. Really interesting trend here that we're going to see play out, and, and we'll see if it takes over in other states or continues in Nevada. Corey Honeyman is the associate director of our solar research practice at GTM. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. For two decades now, activist shareholders have been pressuring the world's biggest oil company, ExxonMobil, to recognize the risk of climate change. Every resolution so far has been rejected. But going into yesterday's shareholder meeting, things were different from past years. The company's facing multiple investigations from state attorneys general about its alleged cover-up of climate science from the 70s. We talked about that on a show last year. The international community agreed on emissions targets for the first time last December, making climate regulations much more real. And with climate scientists issuing increasingly scary warnings about a tipping point, shareholder groups outside the traditional environmental realm are pressuring Exxon as well. But alas, shareholders rejected all climate resolutions this week, and many other large publicly traded oil companies are doing the same So are these companies setting themselves up to fail when the carbon bubble bursts, or are they more prepared than we think, as they are claiming? Jigger, firstly, did you expect a different outcome from the Exxon meeting? Yeah, so I mean, I just think that when you look at New York City controllers, uh, Scott Stringer's um, uh, resolution, which did pass with 62% of the vote, um, it basically allows minority shareholders to nominate outside candidates to the board, which is a huge shift. And I think it's what climate activists are going to use now um, as their way of getting an independent voice on the board. Um, I also thought it was really telling that when you listen to um, the presentation that the Exxon um, management team made, it was literally stripped out of a Bill Gates speech. It was basically that technology isn't ready to deploy um, but we're investing heavily in R and D, and when it is ready, we're going to be ready to, you know, pounce on that opportunity. Which, so I'm not sure that Bill Gates welcomes Exxon's company. Wait, so what you're saying is you think my characterization is is wrong? Then that that there was a total failure. Yeah, I don't think it was a total failure. In fact, I thought it was um, as successful as you could get. Right? I mean, in these things, you know, the ability for someone just to win the shareholder vote is pretty low. Right? So the fact that they were able to pass this outside board member. Uh, piece that could be nominated by a minority shareholder, I think, is the camel's nose under the tent that's going to be used to, you know, radically change the dynamic with these oil companies. Yeah, it seems that um, CalPERS, which is um, has a billion dollars, I guess, of Exxon stock, is really hoping to try to work from the inside. And although a lot of these folks are being uh, criticized for moving too slowly, um, you know, it's kind of like a death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Um, they really do feel like being inside the process is better than being outside of it. So let's take a look at what these activist groups were actually calling for. 
They wanted Exxon to declare a moral responsibility to address climate change. They wanted to elect, specifically elect a board member with environmental expertise. And it sounds like they didn't get exactly that, but there could be an opportunity to bring someone on, an outsider onto the board. Um, They wanted Exxon to basically like buy back stock and make the company smaller and pay issue dividends to investors instead of you know investing in more fossil fuel reserves. Uh, they also wanted, well, they, and then the last one was uh, you know really assessing in a comprehensive way how the, the global action to slow climate change, uh, you know the, the the agreement that we saw in December would affect Exxon's business. Yeah, but I mean, just to be you know clear, I mean, I don't think it's that they're saying that Exxon should be smaller. I think when you look at the data since two thousand eight. Um, almost every oil company has actually had a negative rate of return on investment on their investments, except for Exxon, which has had a slightly positive rate of return on investment. Um, But it would have been far more profitable for them to just do share buybacks or to invest in renewable energy than it was to invest in more oil exploration. I mean, even at $100 a barrel, a lot of these projects, deep sea drilling, Arctic drilling, you know, et cetera, um, you know, ExxonMobil, you know, paid over $70 billion for XOM, um, you know, for fracking and, you know, has lost their shirt on that. So, I mean, I just think that, you know, largely what they're saying is you guys really suck at deploying capital, at least in the last six or seven years, and it would have been better for you to buy back shares. So I think environmental groups, while they are clearly making this an issue that people are paying attention to, they, they saw the rejection of some of these resolutions as a failure. But there is a counter-argument to this, right? I think you alluded to this, Jigger, that there, there have been some important developments. Um, and also, Exxon is kind of recognizing the importance of climate change. You know, it has a statement on its website that says, we have the same concerns as people everywhere. This is a direct quote. And that is how to provide the world with the energy it needs while reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The risk of climate change is clear, and the risk warrants action. And Exxon, Chevron, other leading oil companies all have an internal carbon tax um, that they use when gauging whether you know they should be embarking on new projects. So I know, you, Jigger, you think a lot of their new activity has been a failure, but they are saying that they're putting in place a reasonable carbon tax when evaluating these investments. There are signs that they're moving in this direction, even though these shareholder amendments are rejected. No, but I think this is bigger, and I'd love to hear Catherine's take on this. I think, you know, Politico did a great piece about how ExxonMobil has been ignoring these things for a long time, you know, and basically in November, you know, dispatched, you know, sort of top lobbyists to Capitol Hill on an urgent mission, which was basically to tamp down this escalating campaign at making Exxon the next tobacco industry. Yeah, I mean, they knew and we've had we've had a lot of discussion about this from Inside Climate News Story, which is that they've known about this since the 80s. And so for them to just start doing it, it seems like Exxon has like a special um, need to step up here. Speaking of Inside Climate News, I just want to give them a shout out for the reporting that they've done on both uncovering Exxon's previous climate research and on documenting these historical resolutions. So Inside Climate News had this great story last week or this month sometime, and they evaluated 400 shareholder resolutions for, for oil companies, and 113 of them involved climate change, carbon restrictions, 
um, the competitiveness of renewable energy. So uh, roughly 30 of those never got to a vote. And the remaining ones that were put to a vote were all rejected. So to, that just puts it into some historical context that this isn't just Exxon. I think Exxon is you know, considered one of the worst actors, but many oil publicly traded oil companies have been rejecting these resolutions for years. Yeah, but it's not, I mean, when you look at the politics of this, this isn't about facts, right? This is about consumer sentiment, momentum, and whether you can really get enough activists on the playing field to pressure their politicians to hold hearings and to start this process, right? I mean, you know, it's clearly possible to link actual people who've died from ozone and other things uh, to oil burning. And I think that if Exxon can actually be linked directly to knowing that the product that they were you know, pulling out of the ground actually could kill people in the future and did nothing about it, I mean, there's liability there. Um, and that that's a big deal. Well, Jigger, politics is maybe a path to a solution or the obstruction, but, but the underlying whole underlying um, incentive is money and how much are they making for themselves and their shareholders? Well, the, the politics of this are getting more intense. Congress has now decided to investigate the investigators. And I know that the, you know, the attorney general in New York is investigating Exxon. And uh, there are investigations also in California, Maryland, and the Virgin Islands. And uh, federal lawmakers now want to investigate those investigations. So this is working its way through the political realm in very interesting ways. Um, I will finally just ask if you guys have an opinion on whether this impacts the divestment movement at all. I know people like Bill Kibben have said, well, look at this. They rejected yet and again these shareholder resolutions that are basic common sense on climate change. If there ever was an argument for divestment, this is it. Do you do you agree with that? I mean, I think you're going to get some of each. I think you're going to get some like CalPERS who want to work it from the inside and some who divest. I, I just think there are going to be different ways that people approach it. I don't know, Jigger, what do you think? Yeah, look, I've never been a big fan of the divestment movement. I just think that you know, it's really investing that matters, not divesting. Um, most people who are divesting are divesting just because coal and oil stocks suck right now, and owning them hasn't been a really profitable um, strategy uh, over the last five years. But I, but I think that, you know, the, the bigger thing here is trying to figure out, um, you know, what all the externalities are that we're paying for, right? I mean, you know, the reason why Medicare budgets and lots of other stuff are expensive is that there are a lot of companies that are dumping pollution onto the general population and expecting the healthcare system to pick up the tab, as opposed to these companies who are producing products that create real negative health outcomes. Um, and so whether you want to directly talk about climate change or not, the health outcomes are real. And EPA has actually done a good job of measuring a lot of these things. And so I think that whether it's the activity around the divest movement or whether it's actually the fact that solar and wind and other technologies have gotten so much cheaper recently in electric vehicles, um, I think we've hit a critical mass where um, you've got folks pounding them on the environmental side and you've got solutions providers um, pounding them you know, for a chance on the other side. Yep, totally agree. And even though these resolutions didn't pass, that's basically what I was referring to in my intro to this segment, which was the conditions were pretty different this time around. And even though, you know, they didn't get, all the activists didn't get what they wanted, there's a lot of there's a lot of new stuff here and these companies are under unprecedented pressure. Speaking of uh pressure, let's talk about Lake Mead. 
The West could be facing a water crisis. On May 18th, Lake Mead, which is the reservoir created by the Hoover Dam that serves over 20 million people with water, dropped to record lows. The lake is down to roughly 38% of its original capacity. Agricultural demand, drought, low snowpack, and, of course, a warming planet are putting major strain on America's biggest reservoir. And some are now talking about emergency measures to address the problem and curb water use. The Hoover Dam has also undergone a lot of upgrades in order to keep producing power at such low water levels. So let's talk about the uh, politics of this, what's going to happen um, both in the short term and long term, what's going to happen to the Hoover Dam, a lot to unpack. Catherine, where do things stand in the states served by Lake Mead? Yeah, so uh, the Hoover Dam provides about 19% of the power goes to Arizona, 23% to Nevada, and 28.5% to California. And and it provides 1.3 million people with power, but 25 million people with water. So it, it has both power and water. And the issues out there with the Colorado River are extremely complex. So you have the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead that have been there since the 30s, Um, and trying to make sure that you get agriculture and all other types of water uses to all of these southwestern very, very dry states. And then about 300 miles in the upper basin of the Colorado River, you have uh, the Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell that serve kind of some of the same states, but also New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado. And between those two, the water levels have significantly dropped. Another piece of the puzzle is that in order to move all of that water that is serving the agriculture and other communities of these dry, dry states is Navajo Generating Station, which is a 2.25 gigawatt coal plant um, that's like 30% of Arizona's emissions. But that's used to pump water through this you know, series of aqueducts and canals that move a, a one and a half million acres per feet per year of acre feet per year of water through central Arizona. So this is a really complex issue that has to do with water and power emissions. And and it's all wrapped up, as you say, in the politics, but policy and planning piece of it, but also in this incredible engineering feat of trying to move a lot of power and water into these states that don't naturally have water. Yeah, the politics of this could get pretty intense. So California has first water rights, um, and it could come in and voluntarily scale back the amount of water it draws from Lake Mead by about 8%, and that would alleviate some pressure on Arizona and Nevada. Arizona is at the end of the line. When you you look at the, the water negotiations from many decades ago, Arizona was basically like pushed to the back of the bus, and that state has last water rights. So if Lake Mead continues to drop, California in the short term might be okay, but in Arizona, they, they could lose 13 to 15% of their allocation. So farmers there could be in a world of trouble. And, you know, these cities in Arizona and Nevada, like they wouldn't exist without these dam projects. I think that's important to remember. Yeah. So the Central Arizona Project, which was started in 1968 under President Johnson, um, which created this series of aqueducts and canals serving Arizona, works really hard on water efficiency and trying to make sure that they that in Arizona, they're using water as efficiently as possible. And they've made pretty big strides in reducing by 30 percent how much they use. The 
issue is that just like you said, the water trickles down to them from California. Another solution that I've heard is um, the proposal to get rid of Glen Canyon Dam and get rid of Lake Powell. And if they did that, all of a sudden you'd increase the water for the Southwest by 6% immediately. Because Lake Powell is just like a sieve. They lose like 2.6% of the annual flow of the entire Colorado River just seeping into the fissures of the sandstone of Lake Powell. So that is another proposal that's out there. What's crazy to me about this situation is how many measures have been put into place in the region served by this dam to conserve water, both on the agricultural side and on the commercial and residential side. Nevada, uh, and particularly Las Vegas, has been really progressive on this front. Las Vegas gets the vast majority of its water from this reservoir. And, you know, they've done a really good job of improving their water conservation efforts. But when you look at projected demand for water in this region, it's continuing to go up. And you look at the projections for water levels on Lake Mead and Lake Powell, they continue to go down. So the trend is really scary in spite of these really progressive measures that many would call a success. Yeah, I think you're going to have they're going to have to undertake a much bigger planning process because when all of this was constructed and it really is an engineering feat what these dams and lakes and aqueduct systems have done and what they've enabled um, but but the planning never took into account the fact that they could have 16 years of drought and that the water could get as low as it is. They just did not expect it. I just find the whole hubris of all this stuff to be shocking. I mean, what I do just, you mean? Well, I just think that, you know, like Las Vegas has add a, added a half a million people to its population over the last few years, right? I mean, when you think about Los Angeles, which is the same, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense for people to live there, but they live there because, you know, you're trucking and you're you're bringing water down, um, you know, from the Sierras. And, and so at some point, you just sort of say, you know, is this going to be worth doing for the next 200 years, right? Like, I mean, at what point do you just pull up stakes and say, like, you know, in California, for instance, there are people who have water rights who are who are growing almonds in the middle of the desert because they're saying, well, we have water rights and might as well use it. Um, when it makes no sense to do that, right? And you're right. I mean, once they actually rationalize the policy, all those towns will just go belly up and leave, right? There's no reason for people to live there except that they have water rights. And so there's all of this weirdness that we're dealing with because of a hundred years plus of water rights law. And um, I don't know how sustainable all of these like duct tape measures are going to be at some point. I think someone's going to have to rip the whole thing up. Yeah, that's totally fair. I'm not much of a doomsdayer um, when it comes to like full societal collapse. I believe that communities can adapt, but it's, it's fair to talk about that scenario now that we're looking at these trends, these very stark trends. And this one data point, this record low water level is just yet one more indicator of how unsustainable the whole situation in that region is. Um, so there are a few different ways this could go. Uh, Catherine, you mentioned just getting rid of some other dam projects. There are other options here. The states are going to negotiate this. So they might try to figure out different allocations. The federal government could step in. I mean, the federal government has authority here. Congress could walk in and just say, like, look, here's how we're going to divvy it up. Uh, or it could go to the courts, which would go really slow and it wouldn't be a great option. I guess there is another option, which is like to have real water wars, which we saw in the 30s. But uh, I'm being a little facetious on that. Well, and the James Bond movie that came out, what, like eight years ago was about a water war, wasn't it? I am not a big James Bond fan, so I defer to those out there who are uh, 
James Bond aficionados to know whether that's true or not. The last point is on the Hoover Dam. Many years ago, about five or six years ago, when people started really raising alarm bells about the water levels on Lake Mead, you know, the there were a lot of concerns about whether the Hoover Dam could continue operating. And this is a really important source of power because it provides peaking power at like 1.8 cents per kilowatt hour. So it's, it's pretty cheap. Um, and they've they've had to invest about $15 million into upgrades of the Hoover, Hoover Dam over the last five years. And it has been kind of a success story, right? Despite the challenges, people thought the Hoover Dam wouldn't be producing power by now, but with new efficient turbines, with these new gates and these wickets that basically target the water better with software that runs these wickets and the turbines more efficiently, they've been able to keep power output despite these dropping water levels. So there's like kind of a success story in there. Although, uh, you know, the water levels could keep dropping and the doomsday scenario for this power plant may still be on the horizon. Well, I had a chance a few months ago to visit Foyth Hydropower up in Pennsylvania, and 90% of their work is just refurbishing turbines from existing hydro plants. Like some of them were 100-year-old blades that they were refinishing and refurbishing um, and just maintaining. And it was pretty impressive that they were able to do that. Well, um, that's a good place to end it. Let's finish the show, tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, what do you got for a story this week? So as many of our listeners know, I'm a huge fan of Michael Noble and the work of Fresh Energy up in Minnesota. Um, What they've recently done, which I think is really impressive, is that their agricultural leaders uh, got together with Fresh Energy, Autobahn, and others to establish a statewide standard for use of the land under and around ground-mounted solar projects. Um, so it you know really talks about how you preserve um, habitats for bees and monarchs and pheasants and songbirds and you know an abundant high quality foraging habitat and so I just want to commend those guys I mean now that solar is really becoming an industrial product that's you know that's uh, spreading across the land um, it's important I think to have these kinds of standards in place there's plenty of land available and we certainly just don't need to you know, um, put solar on uh, this kind of precious habitat. That's great to know because, I mean, I found just working in the wind industry also that that siting and permitting issues can be much more expensive than just the installation of the project. So that's terrific. Catherine, what do you got for a story this week? Uh, A bill was just introduced moments ago, H.R. 5350 in the House of Representatives. The lead on it was Congressman Honda from Silicon Valley. He was joined by Congressman Reed, who's on Ways and Means and a Republican from upstate New York, uh, with Congressman Gibson, also from New York, and a Republican in Tacano, a Democrat from California. This is the fourth time that this tax credit for energy storage has been introduced. It's called the Energy Storage for Grid Resilience and Modernization Act. Um, it is, it's modeled after and, and would amend Section 48 and Section 25D so that it would give energy storage a separate standalone provision in the tax code, uh, just the same as solar and other, other technologies have. So we're hoping that the fourth time will be a charm, uh, working on this um, to, to try to see if we can get something done uh, this year. I have two quick stories. One was a great uh, narrative story from the Los Angeles Times on North Korea's solar market. I didn't realize how big North Korea's solar market was. They don't have official numbers. 
So that that's not in the story, but the reporter went and checked out uh, the, the solar PV and solar hot water boom in that country fueled by cheap Chinese panels and actually pretty ambitious government targets because of uh, how poorly people are served by the grid there. So she was describing, you know, nearly every rooftop peppered with solar panels. Um, I think that electricity from solar is still kind of a bit player in the country, but in general, deployment has just shot up and has um, become one of the leading sources of new capacity in North Korea in recent years. Then, as we speak, Donald Trump is in North Dakota talking about energy. He's going to outline some sort of energy policy. God knows what he's going to be talking about. So it's uh, 2 o'clock Eastern time here, and he is probably taking the stage right now. So depending on what he says, we may talk about that next week. Um, Keep your eyes on the reporting coming from that. He may have some uh, worthwhile quotes to pay attention to. And uh, that ends the show. Thanks for listening. If you like the program, consider passing it on to a friend, to a colleague. Give us a review and a rating in iTunes. We appreciate you helping spread the word. It goes a long way, both sending links to your friends, tweeting them out, and giving us reviews and ratings. It goes a long way to getting us new listeners. We also want your emails. We like your questions, your comments, your show ideas. Uh, Some of the show ideas that we get for this show come from our listeners. Email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And, of course, you can find us everywhere podcasts are downloaded iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. I mentioned last week we're on NPR One, and then there are so many other apps out there that you can put on your phone and just grab our RSS feed. Um, Thanks for subscribing. Catherine, have a good week and weekend. Thanks. It's Memorial Day weekend, so enjoy the three days. Indeed. You too, Jigger. Talk to you soon. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.